Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. Take some ibuprofen, put on some relaxing music, and take a deep breath. We're delving into IUDs today. With an ever-expanding list of indications for the levonorgestrel device, it's tempting to view IUDs with rose-tinted glasses. At the same time, there seem to be more and more people coming forward to share gut-wrenching experiences of painful insertions. To help us make sense of this, I spoke with Rebecca Fenton, an adolescent medicine fellow at Northwestern University about painful insertions, how to make them better, and how to keep patients in control of their contraception. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ, here as always with Tom and Navjoy. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jenny. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada, a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Hi, Jenny. So I'm an IUD provider. Um, Tom and Navjoy, is either of you an IUD provider? No. No, I'm not either. I, I like, uh, this is one of those things that, you know, do you ever have things that just make you cringe? And one of mine is that I started my training, but never finished it. And I have about, I have, I have about sort of 80% of the training that I needed to do and just never got around to finishing it. So anyway, sorry, not to unburden myself of my like guilt about that right now. But yeah, no, I'm not. I, I um Is the short answer. I nearly completed the DFSRH, but the person who was my trainer was really horrible. So I, I didn't want to go and ask them to sign me off. So I don't have that qualification, despite having done all the work. <laughs> yeah, so I'm similar, but not, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, um, I got on with my trainer, but just the place where I had to go to get it signed off was not near where I was. And I just didn't do it, which I just, just, oh, wow. it's just makes sorry i'm just like internally like folding <laughs> no. in on myself because it still yeah, makes so, me cringe i mean i want to i would like to talk to you about as a, a male gp and you know i used to do quite a lot of smear tests um but i'd say over the last five years um you know nobody comes to me for a smear test and i, I wonder if amongst male gps i'm probably not alone in feeling like um yeah we, for whatever reason, and maybe it'd be good to explore the reasons, um, you know, I wouldn't consider doing an IUD course to to be an mm. IUD fitter because perhaps um, women wouldn't want to necessarily to have a male doctor do that these days. But is that, I could be me putting up barriers. What do you think? I think that's really interesting. <clears throat> I think anecdotally, you know, I used to work in a practice in Cambodia where I was the kind of one Western female provider, and there was another Dutch GP who was a male, and no one ever went to him for their gynecologic mm. health. Um, but I'm curious to know a bit more about kind of your earliest experiences with an IUD. Like, how were they talked about when you went through training and your earliest kind of exposure to them? What, what was your impression? B or, or either of us? Is that either of us? Oh gosh, uh, I don't know. I just I think I just learned about them as as part of learning about contraceptive choices, and I guess the, the things that spring to mind are things like you know 
for women who haven't had children, they may be more difficult to fit and often not being recommended as strongly or not as you know common a choice. That seems to have shifted a little bit. I feel like there's that's becoming more frequent. That that uh, uh, and that may lead on to to some of the discussions around the the, the discomfort or pain around having them fitted. But um, yeah, I, I, that those my initial thoughts. I don't know, Navjoy, you might have some. No, very similar. I think I sort of the time when I was doing my training and probably learning the most about um, these devices was uh, when you know primarily you thought about um, uh, thought about them as an option for women who had children, and um, I think that's something that's really changed over over time. Um, but my memory of my my memory of of um, sort of when I first started is that. Um, it seemed like something I could have a conversation about, but someone else was doing the fitting. So I I only took that conversation so far and didn't really engage with the kind of, you know, talked a lot about their effectiveness and what they were like once they were inserted, you know, how they might affect your periods, that kind of thing. But really the actual procedural elements of it and what it was like to actually have one done, I, I didn't really go into, I, di- I didn't really know very much about. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, reflecting on the media coverage that we've been hearing about um, in recent weeks about um, people coming forward and saying that, you know, they haven't had a, you know, it hasn't been a good experience and it's been very painful. You know, I, I was reflecting on my own experience and saying, well, you know, I, I in people I've seen who've gone, you know, who I might have initiated that process, I, I wouldn't have prepared mm. them very well for that at all. Can you can um, you tell us more about that media co- coverage I've reviewed? Because um, in your intro, Jenny, you know, that was very clear, wasn't it? That what is this? Is social media awash with uh, reports of, <laughs> of these di- difficult yeah. or... Yeah, yeah I mean, this me is... So there was um, a reporter... Uh, sorry, what was her name again? Oh, yes. So I will start that over. Yeah, so recently there was a really gut-wrenching broadcast on BBC Radio Live with Naga Monchetti and where she kind of went into excruciating detail about her traumatic IUD fitting. The quote from the tweet out is, my screams were so loud that my husband tried to find out what room I was in to make it stop. And we also recently published um, a news and, uh, excuse me, we also recently published a views and reviews piece in the BMJ called The Ripples of Trauma Caused by Severe Pain During IUD Procedures by Stephanie O'Donohue. Um, and so it is definitely true um, that people are seeming to come forward more and more. At the same time, I think people have a, women really, have a growing awareness of the fact that IUDs have a lot of side effects that maybe they weren't kind of clued into in the past or that, you know, like you, Navjoy, were saying, maybe providers kind of brush over um, in our counseling with them. And I say that also from personal experience. You know, I think we're told in our training that, you know, the IUD is this really amazing method. And I think we mm-hmm. have a tendency to amplify the benefits of it and the potential 
uh, upsides compared to the possible con- like side effects and potentially mm-hmm. negative aspects of it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And I think it's one of those things where it's so interesting where the things that we're interested in conveying don't necessarily tally up with the things that patients are interested in hearing about, which, you know, for the work that we do for the BMJ, where we have this patient partnership campaign, where we try and inform our content as much as possible with uh, patient perspectives. And, you know, we're always... Um, coming across examples, not just for this condition, but for many, you know, for many of the topics that we cover, where patients flag up things that may not have occurred to us as clinicians, as editors, to highlight in an article. And I think this is such a good example of that, where the pain that one might experience during the procedure, which seems so obvious, you know, that might be something that in a it, you know, previously in a consultation I might have just sort of glossed over and said oh well you know it, it might be a bit uncomfortable but you know you'll have some ibuprofen and that that should be that should be fine you know that now just seems sort of woefully insufficient do, do we know what proportion we're, we're talking here so, so so I can get this in my mind so that the, the, you know what percentage is there a percentage of, of, of women who would feel a great deal of pain are we talking majority minority occasionally or well so truthfully i don't know that number mm. but also i think one of the challenging things about this is that we can't predict who's going to have a good experience or not there are you know while i think there is a lot of anecdotal experience and history to suggest that the procedures are easier for uh, multigravita women um you, you, it's really difficult to predict who's going to have a bad experience or who's going to find it extremely painful or not. Is it, is it apparent dr- during the procedure, Jenny, like as, as you're doing it? or Well... You know, just sorry, I'm just talking like a, a, a completely ignorant person, but interested about... Yeah, it's, it's really apparent during the procedure. Um, I mean, I, you know, we all do our best, and we'll talk about this a little bit with Rebecca later today, but we all do our best to try to make our patients feel at ease and support them through any procedure we do, whether it's fitting an IUD or, you know, any other office procedure. Um, It is apparent, but you, I think you're stuck with kind of trying to do what the patient told you they wanted and also negotiating at what point you stop. And anyway, um, we'll get to that a little bit later, but I also think this topic is recently um, co- coming up more and more, I think in part because of the kind of Me Too movement, um, Time's Up in Healthcare, where we are more attuned to kind of listening to women's experiences of pain and discomfort. Uh, yeah, and that reminds me of that episode ages ago now about the, the Cumberledge Review and, you know, the experiences of women following um procedures not being listened to you know again and again about about their pain yeah and so i was lucky enough to have a conversation with rebecca fenton about this she's an adolescent medicine fellow at northwestern and she actually told me a little bit about her own experience getting an iud shall we listen after this message from our sponsor when you're a gp you're not just nine to five Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, 
you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Sure. So I'm Dr. Rebecca Fenton. I'm an adolescent medicine fellow, and I'm currently completing my training in Chicago. I very vividly remember my, I guess it was second year medical school lecture on contraception. And there's so few medical school lectures that I specifically remember, but I was like, oh, this is actually like life applicable. These are the questions that my friends are going to be asking me. Yes. So they talked through <laughs> all the options and they made IUD sound like they were heaven. They're like, wait, so effective and they show you the graph that shows that like um, of specialties OBGYNs use IUDs more frequently than anybody else and yet the general population is not using them so it's all about letting people know how amazing they are because people yes. who provide them are the ones who love them and so I walked away from that lecture being like I don't have any contraceptive need at the moment but like when I do that's what I'm getting um, yeah. and so I'm actually somebody who waited until I got married and then I think I was engaged at the time on my gynecology rotation and was like, hey, preceptor, TMI, I'm watching you place all of these IUDs, but like, when do you think it makes sense for me to get mine? Like, I'm not getting married till April, it's August now. And she was like, oh, as soon as possible. And I was like, okay. So on my gynecology rotation, I was actually, it was a terrible timing. I was um, in the operating room and in between cases, I went to the family planning clinic in the hospital. I got an IUD having not eat breakfast or taken any medication. And then I just went back to the operating room. It was, I don't, I, the crazy things medical students do because they can't, we, at least in the American system, like we, it takes so much guts and there's still a lot of pushback when you actually try to take care of yourself that like we make bad decisions like that. So I, I mean, I hear you on I, that for sure. <laughs> I don't even know. And like, I don't have much memory of what the pain or stuff like that was like, because literally after it happened, they were like, Hey, can we give you ibuprofen at least before you have to go back to the OR? And it's like, but I didn't eat anything. So they gave me a bag of pretzels. They gave me some ibuprofen and off I went and nobody around me knew like, Hey, you just did that. And so I love that I can help my patients think about like, Hey, what are you doing that day and the day afterwards? Can you plan for that? Whereas I was just like, Nope, I'm, I'm at work. Um, yeah. I'm doing this now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be retracting. Then, All right. Yes. Yes. And then the story continues with my IUD, actually, I think months later, still not married. So like, wasn't really using it for contraception, wasn't paying attention to it. Um, notice I was like, these strings feel longer than when they were, when they were first put in. And so I go back to the um, person who counseled me, who didn't place it. Um, and it was like, yeah, I agree with you, but like, maybe we should get an ultrasound and you'll probably need to go back to the provider at the family planning clinic to be able to have that checked. 
So I do, they do an ultrasound and my IUD is in my cervix. And oh, so no. like, we can put it back. And I was like, nope, the first time was enough. And clearly like, it wasn't the magic thing I had hoped for that. Like, you know, I get it. It really was presented to me as like, it was the best thing ever. Nothing compares. Um, and so after that, I was like, I think I would rather explore what other options are. And so that's definitely just even affected how I approach IUDs in my counseling is I think trying to change that message from like, they were amazing, even like um, in adolescent literature, they talk about LARCs being like um, first line contraceptive care for adolescents. And I still talk about them first because people may not know about them and yes. certainly their wishes for pregnancy, if at all, maybe a lot later, but also realizing that like they are not the end all be all. There are people who have bad experiences, mine being the like, now I know that one in 100 fall out, but I feel like in medical school, it was like, oh, they like never fall out. And that made yes. me so bad. Like, what's wrong with me and my uterus if we like rejected the IUD? Um, so now I laugh about it. And sometimes when I've had patients like consider other options or just not have a good experience, and I get to kind of empathize with them. I'm like, I didn't either. And that's okay. Let's figure out what works for you. And now I have a contraception that I love, but that's how IUDs have been presented. I think the only thing that comes up now as far as specific training is I know that there's some outside providers, less of the people I work with who might have this idea of, oh, you need to have had sex or you need to have had a baby before you have one. And so when I'm seeing teenagers really emphasizing for their families, like it may be a more uncomfortable and we can like practice what that's like as far as how does the speculum feel before the procedure, but absolutely it can still be placed in anybody regardless of their history. And so I think that's the part that that education hasn't quite made it all the way out to um, primary care providers who are starting this counseling. Yeah, I I mean I completely agree with you. My own experience was, you know, even trying to talk about it kind of very early in my medical training. It was it was similar where OBGYNs were like these are great. And then the rest of the primary care world was like, eh, we don't know, like uterine preparation, like only for women who've had babies. Mm-hmm. Um and then in residency training, I went to a program that was like really pro same day contraceptive access, IUDs all the time. And that was really great. Um, But I will say um, my training did not include like a cervical block. I knew what it was, but I didn't get trained on necessarily how to do it. And also I, you know, I'm a family medicine doctor. I don't really like doing needles all the time, but um, I wonder kind of in your training and your sense of medical education right now, how much do people focus on kind of pain control and women's comfort? Yeah. So I guess I'll even start with the fact that um, as opposed to kind of the family medicine world and pediatrics, like IEDs are things that we know about that are options and like providers may be counseling about them in general, but we as residents get no experience to them. I, as a resident, really had to advocate for getting my own Nexplanon training, but it's not required by our governing body to even have any of that training. And so there's not necessarily any standards for how that gets done. So I appreciate that kind of in pockets of the country, people are asking these questions, but unfortunately there's not like a coordinated effort. Um, So that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to go to fellowship was like, I want to be able to learn how to do IUDs without sending patients elsewhere. Um, But then actually after I wrote the thread um, that you referenced, I realized in some ways that my training was still inadequate because similarly, I didn't, I'm not, have not learned how to do paracervical blocks. I felt like in most of the comments from most of the gynecologists, the one thing that they mentioned that I don't do is like, oh, being able to offer these blocks, offer blocks, which admittingly, it sounds like the research is mixed. I haven't had a chance yet myself to look into it, but I think even just for me, maybe it's like the idea of knowing, like offering it acknowledges that this is a procedure that can feel painful and it doesn't necessarily for everybody, but the acknowledgement of saying like, this may be painful and therefore we're offering something which may help you, which may not help you, or maybe a placebo effect and you still feel better with it. Like 
it seems more beneficial to me in general to presume things are going to hurt and have people be like, oh, that wasn't that bad than to presume that it's totally fine and have people be traumatically surprised by it afterwards. Like that just seems like you're setting people up to have distrust in the medical system when we're lying to them really in some ways kind of across the board with pain of like downplaying procedures to make them sound better. Like I tell patients, I'm like, you will feel cramps. I just don't know to what degree you'll feel those cramps because that's dependent on who you are. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I've, I've had the same thought as well. Like this is a part of my training that I would really like to kind of get more experience with and, um, kind of be able to offer more regularly. I think we're kind of circling around this idea of, um, kind of counseling for this stuff. Um, I've definitely shifted to this idea of, we have the like bedsider graph that shows the various forms of um, contraception. And I told my patients, I'm like, this is a menu. It's the same thing. Like when you're at a restaurant, you go after the thing that sounds the most interesting. And for most of us, we're happy with that. But then there's those times where you're like, this is not what I wanted that I hope you come back. Well, first I hope you stop it. And if you hit something like an IUD, I hope you come back so that we have the opportunity to um, address that and restart that conversation. As much as I love contraception and the benefit it has for patients when I prescribe it all of the time, because we do a lot of menstrual management, I get to see enough times that it just doesn't work for people. And so that has made me realize that there really is no perfect contraception. The goal is to find the thing that works best for you. I think other reasons why I've reconsidered my counseling is in my growing understanding of reproductive justice. And it was actually fascinating that as I was reading Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts, who um, has done a ton of research in just the way in which uh, reproductive oppression was practiced against marginalized communities, and particularly her book is focused on Black and poor women. She acknowledged that as great as larks are, in reality, you also have to have a trusting relationship with a provider because or else your um, ability to have children is really in the hands of a provider. And so when there's been so much mistrust and disrespect across generations, like how hard is that to actually hand over to a doctor? Like I cannot have children until you take this thing out, which means that I have to trust that you will take it out when I don't want it, as opposed to the ability to be able to, you know, if you're on the pill, just decide I'm not taking this anymore. It's not working for me. And so I do appreciate that most patients as the menu are happy with they get, but like, I also love when they come back and have that continued conversation. And I'm finding, I'm trying to keep working on my language to have more people come back and realizing that I may still not be seeing everybody who still thinks because of power dynamics that, oh, if I don't take what Dr. Fenton gave me, or if I don't like it, that I shouldn't go back because that's what she gave me. Like she wants me to stay on this. And so I started saying, I don't care. I care about you. I don't care about what contraception you're on or what you use. And I hope we can just talk about what works for you or does it. I also think there is something to be said about empowering women to recognize when something is potentially a side effect. I think that so often, particularly in women's reproductive health, there are things that happen and everybody treats it as kind of this nebulous thing where we're wishy-washy about whether we can attribute something to a contraception, where we can't know how you're going to react to a contraception and the symptoms can be severe. So I wonder how you kind of have that conversation with people around being aware of their body and kind of being on the lookout for symptoms or how that comes up for you? Yeah, I tend to focus my counseling, at least for any particular contraceptive on the things that we see in large groups of people. And so I kind of define that by basically saying like, 
I want to share with you what we see when we do a research study of people who are on this, like what they're experiencing. It doesn't mean that you may experience any of these or you may have something outside of that. Hopefully that kind of frames it by saying like that's what you can anticipate and that may be normal or if it bothers you like let's talk about it um, but hopefully still leaves room for things outside of that I think one of the ones that's come up with IUDs is I've had patients just kind of describe this pelvic pain after getting it that's pretty persistent and I don't see in the literature that that's like a common side effect but I'm not going to be the doctor who invalidates like if you had no pain before IUD get IUD and now suddenly have pain like your body is clearly responding to something that like if taking that out allows you to at least have crossed that off of your list like then yes let's do that yeah. um, and so especially once they've reported it then there's not necessarily any well the research says like I kind of just do that preemptively I like to prepare people for like here's the things that I, at least I know that you should look out for or that I think are normal so that you're not surprised and then afterwards unless I'm like there's another differential where I'm kind of pinpointing actually that side effect that you think is your birth control is actually your other medication. Then usually I'm just like, yep, if it bothers you and you don't want to be on this anymore, that's the key word for me. Like, I'm not going to convince you to stay on something that you feel like is not working for you. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So interesting. What was your favorite bit, Jenny? What, what, what? She was just so lovely to talk to and so down to earth, um, which was amazing. Her patients are very lucky. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of things resonated. As we were kind of saying before, I think our training gears us up to have this really positive view of long-acting reversible contraception of IUDs. Um, so much so that we kind of minimize the side effects. Um, and I think her advice on kind of presuming pain and resisting the temptation to downplay a procedure uh, has stuck with me for sure. You know, even saying you you will feel pain. I just can't tell you how much. I also really like the analogy between a menu and discussing contraceptive options because I think, and this is something that I've thought a lot about and which she also references is one of the, one of the downsides that we do know about IUDs is the fact that a provider typically has to take it out. And, and I, I, I really want to, I don't know, kind of be more cognizant and think about other ways to empower people with respect to sending it back. You know, I think as providers, having worked so hard to gear someone up for the procedure, there is a reluctance when someone comes back and they don't like it. And it's like, no, we just went through all this to to do this procedure. Um, but that's that's absolutely irrelevant, right? Dr. Mm. do you reckon... Oh, both of you. I mean, this, we're not going to probably be able to answer this properly, but um, I wonder if there's a difference between the, the so UK versus US um, training in terms of how much we might push this option. Um, like, do, do you, did you feel like there was a, basically I'm asking, do you think there's a lot of farmer influence in the, in the US where? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think that... Um, here there is a lot of focus on long acting um options uh throughout throughout our training um i would say 
Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that's what the difference is due to, but that's definitely been the my experience has been. We we hear about that often. That's true. Um, that's true. And early. That's true. I remember a quaff targets of having to code advice about long acting reversible contraception exactly. in every patient's notes for a few yeah. years. Yeah. So we we we're incentivized yeah. to have that conversation at least, and um, yeah. And I mean, the thing that I, you know, that I always try and remember is also presenting it as an option when someone talks to you about um, emergency contraception as well. Um, or yeah. So um, yeah. So I think we do we do hear about them. But I, I thought that was a really great conversation, and I think the thing it reiterated to me was um, that trusting relationship that we're all in a you know we talk about this all the time, but um, the, the trust in that relationship is so, it, with the patient and their clinician is so important and I think there you know although there really is no reason to present things in this way that we do of like oh this is so great you know and definitely what Rebecca was saying what Rebecca was saying about um her you know how she frames things now I I've sort of felt that quite resonant with my own journey particularly talking about contraception actually where um you know I've I'm much less kind of um know what the right word is but I sort of leave it very open now for um the patient uh, person to decide what they want to do and I present a menu and I don't feel so vested in the way that I once did about you know this this is the right thing and I find that interesting and I think part of that also I mean I think that reflects a bigger shift you know in the UK we're seeing um the progesterone only pill for example has just become available to buy over the counter and hopefully there is this yeah I think hopefully there is this shift towards those reproductive options and control being placed with the person themselves to make those choices and to to decide what works best for them and to have that information. I think, you know, we as GPs might always be involved in providing advice and there'll be certain things, you know, we will need to provide a prescription or a referral or whatever. But I, I think that's a a sort of trend that I feel really good about. Uh, I know I know that's not happening everywhere. I know we're having this conversation as things in the US and in Texas, you know, there's scary stuff happening there. But... Um, yeah, but I, I I think hopefully that that things are shifting um, more in more in that direction here at least. I like the I like the menu thing, and because uh, actually I've got a menu themed episode coming up next, so uh, <laughs> just wanted to link that in say, there. A little uh, entree, <laughs> okay. Uh, good yeah, good exactly. teaser. Uh, <laughs> well, quite <laughs> uh, amuse bouche. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing that I spotted uh, during the pandemic was actually all of the, um, in, at least in my area, basically you couldn't have your coil removed during large parts of lockdown and the pandemic because mm. all the services are closed um, and, you know, didn't really get any comments. But I, I thought that was quite um, awful, really, in terms of you yeah. know, contraceptive choices and, you know, if you want to have it removed. <laughs> so yeah, that's such a good point. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to <laughs> to talk about with you guys when we um, had this conversation is actually about this growing phenomenon of self-removal of IUDs, which I think is so great. And it's, I, I knew some of the researchers 
kind of at the beginning of this this um I don't know, this field of study, this area of study. And they um they had a piece recently in contraception from just actually uh last month about self-removal of IUDs um by examining the content of YouTube videos. And they found 58 YouTube videos that featured individuals who removed an IUD, sometimes showing it on the screen, giving in-depth details <laughs> instructions to viewers, with collectively 4 million views. And I, I again, I just think that was so great um, because it is one way to empower patients, totally, you know, necessary in the context of COVID, as you were saying, Tom, um, and really gets around that kind of aspect of, you know, provider control or whatever barrier you may or may not encounter um, when you are thinking about removal. There was a piece about this. Um, there was a piece about this in the uh there was a piece about this in insider.com that highlighted the contraceptive study and i just wanted to read aloud from the article um because it can increase an individual's autonomy over their own contraception it is absolutely worth offering as a choice says sarah gutman an OBGYN specializing in complex family planning in philadelphia and she said they that she discusses the length of the IUD strings with the patient and would leave them a bit longer if the patient wanted the option of self-removal. Jenny, from a non as a non-provider of these things, can I ask, is that is that safe to do? Like, is it what's what's involved in that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because I've actually self-removed an IUD from myself before. Oh. Um, it's totally safe to do. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> it's just one of those things. Um, you don't need to worry about the strings, about you know more uh, expulsions. You don't need to worry about um, you know worse kind of I don't know pain. There's no data to suggest any of that. In fact, there's a lot of qualitative research um, that strongly supports women's desire to do that. Um, and that it doesn't change women's opinions about the contraception, except that it actually um, can increase their comfort with the method. How interesting. Wow. Oh, well, that's definitely something I need to go away and read up on. Cause, um... but, but, uh, so like that tension here with like traditional like evidence-based medicine and people will inevitably say, in, you know, we can't say it's safe until we've we've done some... You know, large studies to look at whether there are complications. Um, what would you say to that, Jenny? So, truthfully, has I presume there haven't been those studies. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I I don't. I'm not familiar with the whole field of literature on this topic. But from what I do know, as I said, there's been a lot of different um, qualitative data exploring women's preferences and patient-based outcomes. Um, there was a paper in Women's Health Issues from 2018. This is what I was referencing earlier, where there were no differences in IUD uptake in um, in clinics in Michigan, Missouri, New Jersey, and Utah for six months uh, when women were counseled on the option of IUD removal and no bad outcomes. Um, but again, I'm 
I don't claim to fully know the scope of the literature. Sounds like a good topic for a uh, clinical update. (laughs) (laughs) Including removal of IUDs. No, but also just everything about IUD. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but like options for pain management. You know, all all of that. I think is uh, when they're being inserted. Yeah, Um, very interesting. Very very interesting. I, I, there is also something in there as well about, I mean, the theme that keeps coming back to me as we're talking about this is about trusting women or people who have um, who have these devices who are making decisions about, you know, their reproductive choices. And it really struck me when uh, Rebecca was talking about um, people reporting side effects or adverse effects or you know, what, what's happened since they've had their IUD inserted. And I think, again, something I hope is shifting or at least beginning to shift is, um, you know, us as medical professionals really hearing women when they're talking about their experiences and not trying to minimise them or attribute them to something else or sort of saying, well, that doesn't really, that doesn't really happen. Um, and actually just saying, okay, if that's your experience, fine, you know, let's deal with that or uh, as it's, you know, with with actually what you've come in with um and i i think yeah clinicians trusting women but then also i think you know as women i think feeling able to trust ourselves and what's going on with our body is just such a massive issue you know where where i think there can just be so much i don't know discussion about what's going on and actually being able to recognize yourself how you feel and what's happening is is really really important comes down to um how you view causation doesn't it you know looking back to the last episode like <laughs> like, like yeah like like looking for looking at the individual and, and how they um i don't know i can't bother to finish that sentence i was I just know, about to say tom amazing. you're so good at weaving all these themes yeah. together with It'd be like helpful if you didn't episodes just, past and present didn't just laugh and look like that you go yes tom that's a great idea impressed what were you saying though, Navjoy, about um supporting patients yeah. to trust themselves and what's yeah. going on with them? I no, think. absolutely. And I think that that also, as Rebecca said, that kind of really gets into counseling. So shall we listen to a little bit more about how we can prepare women for this procedure and how we should kind of think about supporting them with pain? Can you tell us your top tips, best practices um, for making women as comfortable as possible during an IUD insertion after we've done all this really wonderful patient-centered and like great counseling where we emphasize their choice and uh, decision-making and on the menu of contraceptive choices? Yeah. So I guess even to start with um, recognizing that not just people who identify as women are getting IUDs. And so um, some of our patients are non-binary, trans males who are interested in using that for menstrual suppression. And so I think in general, I kind of always remind myself that like 
contraception is medicine and everybody has the reason for why they're using it. And sometimes there's a few things. And so really grounding from that of like asking like one, what are we using this for? And it could be a list of things. And I like to write that out on the consent. Um, but also first starting with like, how much do you want to understand about the procedure? Like clearly I need to explain people like, hey, here's where it goes. But there's some patients who are like, nope, I don't need the details of like tenaculum, sound, IUD. And I'm like, that's no problem. Or some are like, that's what helps me. And so do we talk through it just beforehand? And then during the procedure, I say nothing. Or do you want me to talk as we go along so that you can anticipate each step? I also try to create an environment that's helpful for them. So I think in our clinic in general with adolescents, we're unfortunately not able to do same day IUDs. And so that allows me to have that first conversation, especially if they come in for a contraceptive visit, I get to know them and then we make a plan for when they come back to get it. Then we can start to kind of game plan of like, okay, who's gonna come with you if you want somebody to, do you want that person to be in the room with you so they can hold your hand or do you want them in the waiting room? Um, if you like music, do you want to bring your headphones in advance? And if not, like, let's pull up whatever artist you want to listen to and we'll play it in the room on Pandora so that everybody listens, uh, which is cute. Actually, my last one was just like, oh, but the music has curse words. I'm like, trust me, I don't care. Like, it's fine. What, we like what you like is our phrase and we'll play that out loud for them. Um, what else is he going to say? Um, planning for patients who may have like a history of trauma or severe anxiety. And then in that case, what we do will be maybe sending a prescription for an anxiolytic to a nearby pharmacy, have them pick it up and obviously not take anything so that they have the ability to complete the consent of sound mind and then kind of observed in the room, um, take one to be able to hopefully um, reduce some of that anxiety during the procedure. Um, we also sometimes can bring in our social worker to kind of act in like a child life capacity of being able to distract or practice deep breathing. Um, trying to think of uh, heat packs, of course, are one of my favorites and giving them during and also sometimes sending them home with a couple to go. I tend to give my patients ibuprofen if they haven't taken any, not so much that it helps during the procedure, but kind of just preempting any cramping that they may have afterwards, hopefully gets them home and rest before they need another um, dose. And then as we talked yeah. about already now, trying to figure out how can I get that paracervical block training? Um, it sounds like the gynecologist in our office, I will actually use more of a like um, lidocaine pin and you put gel on. And so that does seem for somebody who also is not a big fan of needles, <laughs> like I'll use it if I have to, um, as like an in-between to have that same effect, but not necessarily requiring an extra poke, which hopefully is helpful for me as a provider who doesn't like poking people and patients. So I'm actually yeah. planning on after that thread, like reaching out to the gynecologist who um, do see patients sometimes less frequently than us in adolescent medicine in our office to try to see if um, how they do that, where they aim for, so that I can try to offer that for patients as well. Um, and then of course there are patients who may choose because of trauma or anxiety or any other reason to actually get an IUD under anesthesia. And in that case, we can arrange for that to be at our main hospital. Although I was just talking with the nurse today about the fact that that also requires a delay, greater setup, especially COVID protocols and also cost. And so um, my hope is maybe that like this paracervical block can be somewhere in between where it's like, if we're, you know, if you can't, for any reason, make that larger expense, how do I try to make this more comfortable? And then the biggest thing I tell patients, I'm like, there's only two reasons why I would stop. One is I'm very humble in my role as a fellow and have nothing to prove. And so if I can't get this IUD in, in a reasonable amount of time and with reasonable amount of pain, like I will stop. And if you still want to keep going, I will have my preceptor who's done more than me come in and do that. And if you're done, that's the second reason, then we're done. Like noodle can be at any point in the process. And if you're like, I don't want to do this anymore, then we stop. And so I also let them know that as well. Um, I know that there's also, I think even in the video, this concern um, that we talked about that you had me sit, watch around 
when do you stop, especially when somebody is uncomfortable? And I think that I hope that preempting that makes it very clear that again, I have nothing to prove. I don't care. Like you can tell me, but that also when you see in the process that people were saying things, checking in with them and being realistic about, Hey, we have the steps left, or you may still continue to experience cramping. Are you sure before continuing? can be very difficult as a provider. Like you're trying to do something that, you know, a patient wants and you've done this counseling and, and it's, it's hard to sometimes see that the, that what you're doing is causing pain. And I've had people say to me afterwards, like, I wish we could have kept going. I really wanted that. And it was like, like, I I can't. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think, you know, of course medicine, like do no harm. And I think the challenge for me even is that like, I, maybe it's because I'm so empathetic. I have a lot of mirror neurons. Like I hate seeing people in pain. I hate causing pain to myself, to others. And so at times you're like doing this procedure that, as you mentioned, you, they've said that they want, you see that they're in pain, they're asking you to still continue. And it just does not sit right as a doctor being like, I'm supposed to be helping you. And here I see that you are super duper uncomfortable. Yes. And I do fear for, I've seen some patients who come back and follow up and felt like, whatever the circumstances of either the discussion or in the placement of the IUD that they somehow felt like they walked away with an IUD that they didn't want. And I also am trying, you know, like balance that, like, I never want to be in that position where you felt like we did something that, you know, put it this way, the experience afterwards may be bad because it's a mixed bag for some days, but like, I would hate for that experience to then be directed as, you know, the medical system caused this because of the fact that you did something that I didn't want versus it's a little different when it's something you wanted. And then you're like, oh, and this is just something that I knew that might happen. And so that's the very fine line I find myself trying to navigate is like, that's why I'm like, you were always, always, always in charge. And if I see, even if it's, you know, like you're telling me, I I may check in a bit more because you're in charge and maybe you still just feel the sense of like, and we all do like, Hey, I'm in this, let me just power through this. Like, that's why we're doctors. (laughs) Like, um, how do I try to give patients back that sense of autonomy of like, no, even if you started this, does not have to finish. And even if you conceptually thought this was a great idea, if the experience wasn't what you thought it was going to be like, that's a good enough reason to decide this is not for me. Yeah, it's great. You're in charge. Really, really good. Yeah. I mean, that actually is it in a nutshell, isn't it? It's how we can make what is quite a, can feel like quite a you know you're ceding over control to someone else how can you have more control and more autonomy in that really good can I ask you both what you think about pain (laughs) I was thinking about you know like um do do you think so thinking about smear tests thinking about um other other procedures or tests that we might do not just in general practice in medicine as a whole PCL um, tests head. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah the exactly PCR lateral flow mm. um <laughs> you know how how to what extent do you think we should tolerate pain um or do we prepare people for it uh is that enough or yeah, the, the the example that always comes to my mind because I I don't I mean I don't do um, arterial blood gases anymore, mm. but remembering from when I did, now just looking back, I just think God, why didn't I use Emla for those? Like why why were we just doing those? And I remember people saying, you know, it feels like I'm being crucified, <laughs> and yet still, but 
sorry, this yeah. just needs to be done. Crunch, and crunching you know, the bone. I know. <laughs> oh God, oh, just yeah. awful memories of that. You know, as a someone doing it, let alone you mm. know for the person having it done. And it just really makes me think. You know, what what is an appropriate? Like, should we? We sh- I think we should be trying to minimise those experiences as much as possible. But then you know thinking about you know thinking let's talk about smear tests for example which can be uncomfortable for a lot of people can be fine for a lot of people as well um but thinking about someone who might be having it for the first time um is do you think there's or, or indeed for mm. you know um iud mm. insertion which we've been discussing today what do you think is the right way to go about that i think that is such a good question um and for anyone who's who who does a you know a a a large number of smear tests in their practice. I mean, we've, we, I think we've all experienced, um, you know, having the, having the test run really smoothly and it being no issue for either us or the patient. And then, um, having times when, you know, you've done this great counseling around, um, the risks around what the test is going to show, why it's necessary, um, what, even what the test um, involves and for whatever reason, it just ends up being really uncomfortable um, for the person uh, who's who's having the test. And I, I, in particular, I had I had one really bad experience trying to do a speculum exam on somebody recently. Um, I, I and and I I think I'm just gonna go back to Rebecca. I think it has to be kind of you are always always in charge and and you know there's hmm. in the in the case of the smear test and not to derail you know the line of thinking but you know there's a lot of interesting research on women doing their own like self swabs and looking at HPV testing as opposed to even necessarily needing hmm. to touch the cervix and and I and I guess that's what I would say like. Mm-hmm. The patient is always in charge. If this is just not happening, it's not happening. And let's be creative about what other testing or what other thing we we could do as an alternative. Um, I think it's really hard. Mm. Yeah, I think and I think you're right. There there is that distinction as well between things where we we can predict something's going to be painful or uncomfortable, like my earlier example of an arterial blood gas, versus things that. Um, sometimes it's very hard to hard to predict or know how that's going to go but yeah it's a good it's a good maxim isn't it uh, try and let let the pa- communicate to the patient that they're in control hmm. rather than no pain no gain or something <laughs> oh, like that God. <laughs> yeah or just we can soldier through this yeah. or yeah yeah I, but i think you know you you put your head in your hands jenny but i i think that's um it, it happens for sure that like oh you know I'm sorry but we we we'll just get through it it'll just be over really qu-. you know that kind of thinking oh absolutely you, you Look, still I, hear about I, happening I completely acknowledge that that happens and you know thinking even about um, the specifics of an IUD insertion I think when people try to explain why paracervical block isn't a more normal part of the procedure part of the rationale rightly or wrongly, is that the procedure is quick. It tends to be over very quickly. You know, this kind of injection has its own risks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for a procedure that's going to be over so quickly, do we do we even need this? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I very much understand the feeling of like, 
it's we're, we're just this little bit like more to go let's just plow on but um that's why talking to rebecca was so uh helpful yeah thank you that that it was a really helpful conversation well, I, I looked up, I've just been looking up the FSRH, you know, the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health uh, guidance on uh, on this. Um, so if it's helpful, just to sort of see what they're saying at the moment is the current practice. Um, so they say local anaesthetic block administered by cervical injection is not routinely required for IUC insertion, but should be offered when cervical dilatation is required or difficult IUC insertion or removal is anticipated or experienced. Uh, and they've got a bit of evidence summary as there uh, that they base that on, which I maybe won't go into. But um, does that feel reasonable from your conversations, there, Jenny? Or do you think we need to go a little bit further and consider this as routinely being offered, which it doesn't go as far as recommended? Well, I think the reality is that there aren't a lot of IUD providers kind of writ large who are trained in paracervical black or who, who kind of routinely offer them. Um, for a number of reasons, um, training the different requirements of that, you know, but I don't know. I suppose what I would say is that we can't know who's going to have a bad experience. Um, so, so when the guidance says when, a, when a bad experience is anticipated, I mean, literally the only thing I can think of is someone who's had a prior painful attempt um, I can't really, or, or who has, you know, some other history where they're saying, you know, during a speculum exam, it's extremely uncomfortable or whatever, whatever. Um, but there, it's very hard to predict who's going to find it painful or not. Yeah. Um, but if there's a big barrier to, to having that, so I would need to refer you on to somebody else and that's going to take weeks. And I suppose it's more tempting to carry on uh, and do what you shouldn't do, which is just to say, oh, well, let's yeah. keep going or, yeah, because I'm not trained to, to get, or do the block. Or we can try it without that, it or whatever. Is that yeah. 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 I mean, I will say the only other thing, because um, I, I, um, I was introduced to Rebecca over med Twitter and she had a thread on kind of how to, um, how to support patients through difficult insertions. And one of the things that also came up in the thread is that a lot of IUD providers um, will suggest that women only come in when they're on their period, when they're menstruating, because then the cervical os is already a little bit dilated. And so the thinking is that um, it's easier to, to, to do the procedure and potentially less painful. But even then, I don't think that that necessarily correlates with whether you're going to have a good or bad experience. Interesting. And I don't know if there's, you know, if when you counsel um, a patient about this, if they express a wish to be referred to someone who has experience in doing these blocks. I don't even know, Tom, Tom you know, in the UK setting, how how achievable that is. I, I will yeah. say that NICE guidance has kind of focused on educating people about LARCs because, because they have perceived it a kind of lower level of population awareness. And so my guess is that if if we're still needing to tell people these methods exist, then people probably aren't coming in asking, and will you do a cervical block? And what? Are, how are you going to make sure that I, I'm comfortable <laughs> during the procedure? Um, but 
That's right. Yeah, that's on us that's to right. bring up, and, isn't it? That's on us. to keep in mind, the patient is always, always in charge. Well, that's it for us today. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Rebecca for joining us for this episode. Thanks so much to Tom. Thanks, Jenny. See you next time. And to Navjoy. Thank you. See you all next time. You can like us, you can leave us a review, and you can subscribe on any platform that you're using to listen to us now. That's all for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>